Welcome to Mind, Body, Health, and Politics. I'm your host, Dr. Richard Lewis Miller. The mission of Mind, Body, Health, and Politics is to enhance your physical and emotional well-being and encourage community. And I say encourage community because community is so important for our health in every way possible. And as it turns out, human beings are basically friendly tribal animals. We like being in community. We like doing things together, whether it's sewing circles or watching football or playing golf or swimming. We like to do things in groups. We love to eat together. And you can see examples of that, of cooperation and collaboration, including in business and science, all kinds of things human beings love to do in community when we know one another and we feel safe. But at the same time, it's very important for us to recognize and stay aware of the fact that while 95 or more percent of us might be friendly, cooperative animals, there are a small percentage of us that are very different. They're avaricious. They're predatory. They believe in top-down rule. They believe in dictatorships. They believe in what we call tyranny. And they would have our democracy and our republic if they could. And as you well know, there are movements on right now in our great country to overturn this democracy. We must not forget what happened on January 6th, because if they had gotten their hands on Pence and stopped him from the orderly procedure of Biden becoming president, Trump might have declared martial law, and we might still have him as a dictator in this country. We must be ever mindful. Democracy, one person, one vote. Republic, no one is above the rule of law. These are not givens. These are things we may have to fight for but we certainly are things we have to be aware of. In the words of one of my heroes, Thomas Jefferson, eternal vigilance is the price of liberty. Today on Mind, Body, Health, and Politics, I'm very privileged to have with us Giselle Fernandez-Osterholt, and she's doing some very exciting work that you're going to want to hear about in the area of psychedelics. Welcome, Giselle. Thank you. It's so nice to be here with you, Richard. Thank you. Giselle, in addition or maybe part of your research, which you're going to be telling us about, what are the big items on your radar screen as you walk through your days and weeks and months of your life? It's an interesting question. As you invited me here today to talk about death and psychedelics, and the theme of death always brings me in touch with how we're living. You know, this mm-hmm. idea that by being aware of our finitude, of our limitations, of the time that we're here, the quality of the time in which we're living. It's constant inquiry into the how, into how we're walking and talking in integrity with our heart, in harmony with our relationships, in respecting and uh, honoring the environment, the earth, And we're indeed living very powerful, transformative times. And so that sense of gratitude for every day, it's uh, always present with me. So gratitude is big on your your radar screen. It's big on mine as well, Giselle. I feel very grateful. Mm -hmm. I'm I'm grateful just for the fact of being here because, as, as I say so often, one cannot even imagine the number of sperm and the number of eggs that never made it to become a person. And we did. <laughs> yes. <Right. laughs> and and amongst all the people who made it and all the people in the world that we right now get to sit with each other and have this conversation about something that is meaningful to you and is meaningful to me and to a lot of people who are listening to us. That is also a gift, and I also have a lot of gratitude for the opportunity to do that. So please tell us, how did you get interested in this particular aspect of living that we refer to as either dying or transitioning or passing, leaving this material existence? How did, how did that grab your interest of all the things around for you to study? Well, I am originally from Brazil, Richard, and... When I was studying psychology, I had a job in a hospital, and that was how I started my career in the field. 
And in that position, uh, hospital psychology, I was counseling people before and after cardiac surgery. And I did that for four years in my 19, 20, 21, 22, around that age. And back at that time, this was about 25 years ago, people thought they would die if they would go under heart surgery. And my encounters with them in the hospital, helping them prepare psychologically and emotionally for the surgery would be around themes of death. And in, in the moment that they entered the hospital, were preparing to have open heart surgery, thought they were dying, they would revisit their lives and look into the regrets of not having made amends with family members, the regrets of not having taken vacation for a number of years, things that they thought they should have lived and didn't. In other words, the fear of death was connected to unfulfilled or unlived ways in which they were engaging in life. And their unsettledness around going through surgery and the, the thought that they could potentially die was directly connected to how they were living. And I remember walking out of the hospital and one, being very grateful that I wasn't the one undergoing cardiac surgery. <laughs> so my path of awareness of disease and, and death and dying started at a, at a very early age. And also to the, to the quality and the content of the type of processes that people were going through. And of course, witnessing their process and supporting them in that process gave me greater appreciation for life and uh, things that I thought ought to be important for me to pay attention to and engage in. Amazing that you were late teens and early 20s when you were doing this. Oh my gosh, yes. it's almost unfathomable. Wow. I mean, you were sort of what you might say still at the beginning of life, and there you are working with these people who might be, not for sure, at the end of life. Mm -hmm. One of the things that really stands out for me about this your story, and I want to hear a lot more, is that someone was bright enough, broad enough to assign you to do that work. I went into heart failure about a year and a half ago in a very, and I went to a cardiologist in a very prominent place, the Bay Area, University of California, San Francisco Medical School. And I have great cardiologists. And mm -hmm. I went through a catheterization into my heart, into my whole system. I went, into, I went through an ablation where wires were put right into my heart. I went through an mm -hmm. installation of a pacemaker and a defibrillator, which put wires into my heart. I had all those procedures, including being told I was in heart failure. No one ever recommended counseling of any kind. Zero. I know. And this is the year 2021. And here you are. That was a while back. And at, at mm -hmm. that age and doing that work, I say, I applaud. <laughs> I applaud loudly. That, that's you. outstanding. Somebody was really on the ball there. Okay, tell us, tell us more about the kinds of things that you've, anxiety, depression, fear, were you dealing with a lot of that? Yes, a lot of that. Yeah, so that, that was the, the beginning of my interest in, in the topic of, of death and understanding what happened to people in situations where, you know, to, to quote here the, the German philosopher uh, Heidegger, that differentiates between our two modes of existence, the everyday mode and the ontological mode where he, he talks about the ontological mode as the miracle of being. And so we go about our lives living in an everyday mode with our ordinary consciousness and being preoccupied and, and worried about things and going about choices and relationships in a certain way. And when something happens to us that we either face a threatening disease or we have a breakup or somebody who we love pass away, or you have some kind of trauma, or sometimes even it's through a dream, there can be an opportunity to switch that everyday mode into an ontological mode, almost like as if the reality shifts right in front of us in face of a irreversible experience, and it awakens us into outside of this everyday mode, into understanding certain things about life, about ourselves, about everything around us. It's almost like the 
the curtain closes and then a new scene comes on. It's um, would it be fair to call that usually, would it be fair to call that a witnessing mode? Is that similar? Well, I, I tend to think about those moments as a confrontation with death. Ah. When when we get in touch with pain, we face suffering, we go through it, and there's a there's a possibility of an offering, an opening for transformation. And does that make sense? I understand what you mean. I understand what you mean. I I I'm interested particularly in how it is that we're teaching ourselves to be afraid, to be anxious, to be depressed about a part mm-hmm. of life that is just a part of life. And and so we well, we, we mm-hmm. and, and, and to the extent that we've created these these distortions for ourselves, we're we're disrupting a part of our life out of these concerns, anxiety, fear, etc. Over death, and it's not something we can do anything about. So it's an irrationality that we have created, and I'm I I think there's some value in figuring out how we're creating this so that we can teach how to live with it much more gracefully. The way I think what you talk about supporting these people in their in their in their being in their in their development. Well, Richard, we have to think about the social cultural aspects of how we deal with death, right? Because our culture, modern society is, is death denying and it, it, it's a death phobic culture. Mm-hmm. We, we deal with the fear of death in ways that are to avoid, right? The fear of death is usually unconscious and repressed. We lack spaces to talk about death, to, to properly process grief and to get in touch with the fear of death. And of course, with the advancement of modern science, death is interpreted as an ultimate failure, right? We have (laughs) so much medicine, so much technology, and you're going to die, you're probably doing something wrong, Mm -hmm. right? So so it's this paradigm of a heroic condition that everything can be solved with science, and we can escape the inescapable. And th- these last 100 years, death has been not only medicalized, but professionalized, and, and nobody even sees it. People go into hospitals, and, and there, there isn't that proximity with, with death. And I, I'm not sure we do a great job in supporting people who are either preparing to die or people who have lost people that they were close with. I have a, a suspicion and experience by my clinical work that that's actually not really well supported in, in most places in society. What are some of the things that you believe people are afraid of when they're afraid of death? Well, that's a great question. And for that, I actually would love to tell you a very short story honoring my ancestors. So my maternal grandmother was 86 years old, and I went to visit her in Brazil. It was the very last time I saw her. And I knew, and the whole family knew, that she had a tumor in her lung, and she would die sometime soon. And it was a decision of the family members to not tell her that, along with her doctor, that it was a very small thing, and she didn't need to know about it, and, but that she would eventually die from that. And but all the people, when all I, the people around her in the family, the immediate family, they knew, and she, she was, yes, the, she and, was supposedly the only one who did not know. Correct. <laughs> so I go to visit her, and we were very close. And she tells me she was afraid of dying. And I asked her, "What exactly was she oh, afraid of?" Oh, good for you. And she said, "I'm afraid of the the passage itself." And we had a long conversation about this. She was afraid of the transition, of having difficulties breathing. There was something in her that knew it had to do with Uh the lungs. And she said, and so I'm afraid of of not being able to breathe. And I listened to her and we spoke about, I validated her fears. And I said to her, well, are you afraid what's going to happen afterwards? And she said, no. Are you afraid of the people you're going to leave behind? You know, and she said, no. So her fear was just the, the, the way, the transition. And so I asked her, okay, so if that's what you're most afraid of, 
how exactly would you like to die? And she answered, I would like to die like a birdie. I would just go to sleep uh. and poop peacefully. And so I said to her, okay, so let's just do that. I am going to hold you in my heart and in my prayers for your wish to be granted. That when your time comes, that you make your passage like a birdie. And she felt very relieved about that conversation. So did I. It was a closure for us. I knew and she knew that was the last time we were seeing each other. She gave me a lot of her belongings. She gave me some jewelry. She gave me some shoes. We, we had the same shoe size, some objects. And of course, when I left her house, I was in tears from, from the door on. I'm in and, tears listening um, to the story. Yeah, but, but you know what happened, Richard? She made her passage a few months after exactly how she wished she yes, would pass away. I knew away. that was coming. That's what's choking me up. It's so beautiful. It's so beautiful. It was. How old, and, how old, I am how old very, were you at the time? I was in my 30s. Mm-hmm. You're an angel from heaven. Mm, thank you. So, so, so was the what I'm trying thing. to say. Mm, thank you. I so, can't so what I'm trying I can't imagine, to say. But, uh, mm, I'm sorry I have to interrupt and give you this compliment. I just feel compelled because. It's overwhelming, the beautiful thing. You you said the perfect thing to her because she was not afraid yeah. of being dead. She was concerned yes. about dying, the method of dying, not the deadness. And you said the, That's and right. you, you That's... gave her the perfect thing, which is an easy transition, my word. Oh, my gosh. <laughs> yeah. yeah. And, and I stood with her in, in that wish and and in that vision. And so, and this is something that, I've learned from Elizabeth Kluber-Ross for my years back in the day working at the hospital. She was a great mentor to me, the Swiss-American psychiatrist who wrote a lot about death and dying and the five stages of grief and how you cannot move people through the stages. You have to meet them where they're at and, and become closer to what exactly is the part that is difficult for them. Because when people are approaching death, sometimes, like my grandmother, was the way that was the most difficult piece. Sometimes what people are afraid of, it's what's going to happen after. Yes. Sometimes people are, what they most difficult for them is who they're leaving behind uh, or what they're leaving behind, uh -huh. which was true for my father, who I also had a lot of conversations about death and uh did a ritual before his passing that was always also instrumental to to his transition. And what kind of things was he um, concerned about leaving behind? It's a personal, <laughs> it's a very personal answer. There was some things about the family and some dynamics with the family uh -huh. that he was concerned about. I see. And, I, and we talked about it. And what I will share with you is that he said to me, that he wasn't worried about me. Uh -huh. and, and that was a great gift that I received in that moment. So yes. with him as yes. well, I was able to have closure, yeah. to talk about the process of dying. He was also in the hospital. And with him, he, he made a drawing. I, I, I took some art materials and, and paper, and I was trying to distract him. It was a long hospitalization, and, and he drew an airplane. And I said, Dad, what is this? Was it the airplane? Do you want to travel? What's going on? Yeah. And, and then oh, yes. he said, yeah, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to go. Yeah. You know, I'm going to take this out. And, and we openly spoke about that. Uh -huh. and, and he was ready. He was ready to go. He was unattached. And I, I tried to convince him to stay. <laughs> My own feelings as a daughter of saying, but don't you want to stay around to see your grandchildren? I, I wasn't married and didn't have kids at the time. And he said, no, I don't. I'm, I'm done. Yeah. And so, and we openly spoke about his desire to go, his readiness to go. Well, I share something with both your grandmother and your father. What I share with your mm. grandmother is I don't want to deal with dying very much. I don't have any fear. I don't mm. have any fear of being dead. But if the dying is going to be difficult, I'm going to take care of it myself. 
And what I share with your, mm. what I I decided that a long time ago. And what I share with your father mm-hmm. is one of when I start thinking about how I'm going to do it when that time comes. One of the things I've mm. always thought about was taking a plane because I can fly and and flying out over the ocean and then just taking some pills and just drifting off. Mm. But it's just a you know one of many ways because I want to do it in a way that that creates the least difficulty burden for the people that I leave behind. I don't want to, I certainly don't want to do anything messy, but disappearing into the ocean with a nice letter, there's nothing to clean up. You're just gone. So I'm just mm-hmm. sharing with that with you. I don't think I've ever told anyone that before, but I can relate to both uh, you. both your stories. You're welcome. Both your, your grandmother and your father, the plane. Yeah. As soon as you said that. Mm-hmm. So yeah. So so here's an important aspect, right? Because I am I'm I'm sharing with you my comfort and what is the word is the ability to come close to these conversations. It makes you come close to yourself and have these conversations. And the the consciousness of dying and the ability to speak about it, to share the wishes whether it is in the way or the timing or what one, how one wants to live towards the end, those are very powerful conversations to have, which leads me into the other aspect of our topic today, which is psychedelics. Yes. As a, as a researcher and a psychotherapist and a director of facilitation of psychedelic studies at UCSF, we have a number of studies that are happening right now. We are one of the USONA sites. That's the one for persistent depressive disorders. And we have a study for Parkinson's to treat anxiety and depression for patients who have Parkinson's. We also have one for bipolar disorder, chronic pain, anorexia. There are some other studies coming in line. Wow. But with this conversation, that's a lot of studies. I think about that's great. I know we're. We're very busy Any, um, doing psilocybin-assisted therapy. Anything with OCD? Anybody doing that you know mm-hmm. of? There, there is, yes, there is a group planning for a study with that inside of UCSF. Yes, Good. it will come soon. Yes. But I was thinking about the Parkinson's yes. study because Parkinson's is a degenerative disease and it brings people in touch with their fear of death, with their anxiety around how am I going to become? Am I going to be able to walk, to talk, to feed myself? What's going to happen to my mind? What's going to happen to my body? And what am I okay with and what I am not? How comfortable am I with leaning in family and friends? And 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 when does it come a point where I want to call it quits? Yes. Like you said, you know, and I, we're just completing the pilot of that study. And so the results and the outcomes for that study will be published soon and probably we'll have an opportunity next time to talk more in depth and with details about the results there. But in a broad stroke, I would say it's been very powerful to witness people move through those stages. So like I was mentioning, the five stages of grief that Elizabeth Kluber-Ross delineated yes. when dealing with death and dying. And what I see in the Parkinson's study that psychedelics has been very instrumental is to help people move through some of the stages, right? So from, you know, having the disease and not wanting to talk about the disease, not wanting to look at what how this could develop, not wanting to talk about it with family members, to facing it, to, to, to taking a closer look and then carrying out different interactions in life, whether it is on seeking retirement homes or having conversations with loved ones or even realizing, wow, I'm alive and I want to live in a different way right now. I may have Parkinson's, but that is not going to limit how I live. And so, Everything in that spectrum. So this, this, the flip of the coin between I, I am going to die and thinking about how I'm going to die, when I'm going to die, talking to people who are important in your life about that, to looking at how I'm living and making different decisions 
and orienting towards life in a different way. Sal, so I, I know you're at li- not at liberty to discuss certain aspects of the of this research with Parkinson's uh, subjects until it's published. But ca- are you at liberty to tell us things like how the Parkinson's patients were selected? how much psilocybin or what was the psychedelic that they received? Can you tell us things like that? How much they received? What else did they get counseling in addition? Can you tell us about the mm-hmm. protocol of the experiment? You yes. can. Well, please do. That's yes. exciting. Yes. Yes. It, it, it's, a, it's a beautiful study where participants are being referred by their neurologists, and some of them have take their Parkinson's medication, and they are referred to because they meet criteria for anxiety and or depression in dealing with the diagnosis or in dealing with life. And they are at very different stages of Parkinson's disease. Uh We have worked with people who have been diagnosed a year ago to people who have been diagnosed 10 years ago. And uh, when the participant comes in, they the, the, the part that I do is I prepare them for the journeys. And so we have three sessions in preparation of two hours each where we look at their lives, who they are, how the Parkinson's impact their relationships to themselves, to their emotions, to their bodies, to people around them, to their outlook of the future. That's the qualitative aspect of the study. And we prepare them in relationship to what a psychedelic experience can be. Some people who came through the studies have been old hippies in the 60s and 70s and had previous experiences of psychedelics back in the day or when they were in college. And other people have come in and they had no experience with psychedelics in their life previous to the study. And for everybody, we do the same preparation to talk about psilocybin and what that does to the body, to the psyche, to your thought processes, to what kind of experiences you may encounter. I facilitate the dosing sessions, and the first dose is a low dose. It's 10 milligram of psilocybin, which is not the same as if you were to have dry mushrooms. So for people who are listening and are familiar to dry mushrooms, psilocybin is synthesized in the lab and is specially produced for the study. And so it's a way that it can be measured and for everybody to get the same amount. And so it's 10 milligrams of psilocybin. That's the, that's the first one, which would be a more psycholytic dose, a dose that people are in an altered state, but are also still in touch with their thought processes and are able to talk and, and really use that session therapeutically. And then they have a couple of sessions to integrate that first experience and prepare for the second one, which is the higher dose, which is 25 milligrams which is the dose that is standard in most research studies. So when you hear about the studies who have been done with end of life, the 25 milligram is the standard amount that it's used in all those studies, and that's the second dose. And so by that point, the participant already had three psychotherapy sessions, one low dose, another two sessions of integration and prep, and here they're entering the big dose. So they come in and they have been well-prepared and layered with the first dose to then really take a deep dive and work towards their intentions. And then they have four sessions of integration after the second dose. And that's the whole protocol. Thank you. It's, very, it's interesting to me that I'm seeing more and more as the studies continue finally <laughs> I say finally because I've been waiting for 50 mm-hmm. years for these studies, but that right. more and more attention is being paid to the sessions before the first psychedelic session, and more and more, and mm-hmm. even more is being paid to the integration sessions after the psychedelic. And I think this is extremely important for the public to know because it's the protocol that's applied to these psychedelics. That really is what makes the medicine and not recreational drugs. That, that is, that's yes. because it just turns out that that's how it is in life. There are certain things that you can use recreationally, you can use medicinally, but, it, but the public needs mm-hmm. to know that there are protocols being developed, which are very, very different than waking up on a Saturday morning saying, I think I'll take some, uh, some magic mushrooms, taking them and then, you know, mm-hmm. thinking that they're going to have 
some kind of a, a panacea experience, etc. They may have a wonderful experience. I'm not denying that in any way, but it's not the same as what what, what what's being you know experimented with and what's going to eventually become a standard medical procedure, psycho, psychological and medical procedure. Well, we hope so, right? And and I look at what happened in Oregon with measure 109 and 110, where there is that difference there between the personal use and the medical use of psychedelics, because I think it's important to recognize and validate that, as well as it's important to validate and recognize the the historical use and indigenous use of these medicines. And so different settings and, and different ways of accessing and different relationships to the medicine it gives the different opportunities for these these medicines to have different effects. So yes, the same way that it would be important to have psychedelics accessible for people suffering from mental illness, it would be probably important to have people who want to use it recreationally not be oppressed or criminalized for their personal use, yeah. right? So, so, but, but it is important for people listening and, and, and we do have to do these days more than ever, a lot of psychoeducation around psychedelics, because I have people coming into the studies and having seen films and reading things in magazines and a lot of hype around psychedelics. And they come with a certain expectation, mm -hmm. even in a research setting of what may happen. And I actually had one participant after the session be upset because he didn't see unicorns <laughs> and <laughs> that's very good and uh, i'll remember that one and so, i'll remember that's a good one he didn't yeah, see unicorns and, and yes and so and so i always like to prepare people for for the whole spectrum of what can happen right but of course if you if you watch a documentary and you see portions of people speaking about what happened to them it may give out the wrong impression so, in other words, the psychedelic alone in itself, yes, holds a lot of potential and it's incredibly powerful medicine. But the way it's used with the preparation, it's really what makes it most effective. Now, I, of course, I'm biased because I'm a psychotherapist and it is part of my work. And I have been working with people for over 25 years and I don't believe in, in a magic I, I believe in transformation. I believe in the power of healing and that lies inside of each of us. I believe in the, in the potential of encounter. I believe in people reinventing themselves and improving themselves, but I don't believe in, in, in magic or quick fix. And so when we're considering psychedelics, I think it's important that we consider the, the, the potential and the full spectrum in which we, they can offer and hold it them, hold them with that much respect that they deserve, which means holding each individual in, in that, right? So when people come in, they've had their own lived experiences. They have ways in which they've held their pain and ways in which they hold their, their, their hopes. And they have been clouded from connecting with that, which we call the inner healing intelligence. With, with the inner wisdom and the connection to something bigger than, than themselves as well. So that's what has been clouded. And so the psychedelics can be very powerful in assisting them in reconnecting to that. But most people, because they have been disconnected from themselves and have been living in anxiety, in fear, in depression, they can't quite utilize the psychedelics on their own. In the same way, they do really need the preparation for it, the support, the talking about where they're coming from, that moment in life, what's important to them, their belief systems, the different parts of themselves, the part of themselves that's ready to heal, as well as the part of themselves that is afraid of change and transformation. And all of that needs to be validated and acknowledged and given space for expression and processing before they enter a psychedelic session, because once they're in it, they will then be able to utilize that intervention and make it as powerful as possible. And so sometimes 
when you read about the results that psychedelics and psilocybin-assisted therapy produces substantial improvements in anxiety and depression, we know with end-of-life studies helping with demoralization and hopelessness, and we know that improves spiritual well-being and quality of life, and that it's long-lasting. For a lot of people, these changes are sustained. They their follow-up six months, a month, a year later, and, and the person still can sustain those benefits from the existential distress and, and their quality of life. We're, we're, we're looking into the, 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 the researchers, the academic, the medical, the mystical community is still understanding what is mediating these therapeutic effects of psilocybin and, and this possibility that is long-lasting. In some ways, it has been associated with people having mystical experiences. And so the experience itself having spiritual qualities that leads to greater reduction of depression and anxiety. And, and here it is what we were starting to talk when we first started this conversation today. And we're talking about death and, and, and denying death. And so if, if the concrete, the physical death can destroy us, the topic of death can save us, right? Because it's by by coming in close close contact with this meaningful, spiritual, existential aspect of our lives that is that we realize how we're living, and 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 sometimes that is what is an indication to change and transformation. Other people are mostly interested in the decreased default mode network activity or the decreased middle prefrontal cortex activity or the serotonergenic system of the brain. I mean, there's all kinds of, you know, different people coming from different fields in medicine, looking at the neuropsychopharmacological mechanisms in which psilocybin produces these long-term alterations in the, in the cortical networks. But I'm one to believe that it's a holistic treatment. That while we are investigating the physical aspects of it, the neurophysiological aspects of it, we ought to be very interested in the, the body, the mind, the energy, the meaning, the symbols, and, and all that, that encompasses a person in that moment in life and how they're making meaning out of that experience and how they're recreating their narratives about who they are, about what life is about, about how they want to re-engage in life. And, and that, I don't believe it's purely biochemical. Right. Giselle, <laughs> at the beginning, we, we, you mentioned anxiety and depression. Is that a separate study from the Parkinson study, or is that part of the Parkinson study? It's part of the Parkinson study because we're, we're not treating Parkinson's. Right, we're treating depression and anxiety okay. for Good. people living with Parkinson's. Good. The same way, for example, the, the chronic pain study that we're going to start this summer. We're not going to treat chronic pain, but we're going to treat the relationship that people have with chronic pain. pain. That right up my. Can I sign up to be a subject for the chronic pain study? Yes, you may. Well, I'm 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 sort of half kidding. I'm not really kidding because I am a chronic pain patient, and mm-hmm. and I know that psychedelics and my own self-experimentation have been extremely helpful. Mm-hmm. Part of the, I think yeah. you know, part of the reason they've been helpful is they get me to a combination of witnessing the pain rather than experiencing it so I get distance on the pain, which is mm-hmm. helpful. Mm-hmm. And sometimes mm-hmm. I become the pain, and when there's nothing mm-hmm. but pain, then there's no pain because everything is the same. So I use that as a, as a tactic at times. But I'm I'm real interested. I will follow up on that. That's that's beautiful. So you're you're pointing out to the relationship to to the pain, and sometimes it's the relationship to yourself in pain, yes. or is the relationship, and and then in that relationship of yourself in pain, there's pain itself that sometimes is all encompassing, and you and pain become one. And then there's moments in which you can transcend the pain and witness yourself in pain. Exactly. And then sometimes what I do is I find the psychedelics facilitate my using my inner television set to go to the source of the pain 
and I know where it is. Mm -hmm. It's in between two vertebrae, and there are nerves that are being pinched. And I use my inner camera Mm -hmm. to go to those nerves and try to do things that will both soothe them. Sometimes I put something cold on them with the television to see if I can cool them down. And then sometimes I mechanically, of course, try to pull the vertebra apart. Yeah, and so and so, what happens here is if you were having your session in a facilitated way, let's say in a protocol that involves psychotherapy, yes. you would be not only working with that pain the way you are already by looking at it, studying it, getting in there, knowing what helps shift, but then afterwards taking that information and and, and processing, okay. Is there something that I could be doing differently? Is there a way in which I'm relating to my day-to-day or to my body that could be different? Is there something that I do when I'm in pain? Is, does the pain have a way to invite me to certain spaces? And do I follow that or not? So, so there's all kinds of symbolic and uh, habitual ways in which one engages with pain and the body that it, sometimes the pain is trying to slow one down or is asking for one to do more exercise or to hold the bodies in a certain way or have certain habits. And and sometimes that is something that we listen to and sometimes that's something we ignore and, and try to go about it as if we don't know that. And, and then it comes back because it's requesting a, a certain part of us or a certain way of us engaging with our bodies in, in, a, in a way that soothes the pain. I was influenced by this dance group started by a woman. I think her name is Pina Bosch. Have you heard of her? Mm-hmm. She, she, she st- I don't recall. She started a dance group maybe 20, 30 years ago, and they're a collective. Mm-hmm. So they not only dance together, mm-hmm. they live together. They're communal. And the the focus of their dancing is all about dancing with extreme, and I mean extreme, intention, so that every single motion, to the best of their ability, is an intended motion. And I have found that kind of way of being, of moving with great intention, a tactic to use with my pain. Very helpful. So I, I just wanted to I wanted to share that with you. There's a movie about her. I, you I, might I, you might enjoy mm-hmm. the movie if I can get a link to it. I will I'll uh, send it to you. Yes, Pina Bosch. Please do. I'll check it out. Yeah. Pina yeah. Bosch. I you know when when you when you share that from a dancer to another, assuming that you also have the love for dance. I do. I, I dance do. Has I, been part I love of, to dance. Yeah, me too. It's it's a it's a very important part of my life. I've danced my whole life, and one of my great teachers, Anna Halprin. Oh my gosh. Um, used to and and Gabrielle Roth, both of them. I studied with both of them. I said, I said oh my gosh, and- because before you said Annie Halpern, I was about to tell you that I studied with Annie Halpern. And yes, she- and so I, I so she she used to talk about that when you know when the body is 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 in pain or the body is so tired or the body holds limitations. You could be using a wheelchair. You could dance with your finger. That's right. Right. So she had this way right. of inviting the movement to the parts of the body where the movement is accessible. And it doesn't have to look any way like other people. You can find your own dance and your own pleasure in moving with the parts of the body that are ready to move. And uh, Gabrielle Roth also was studied with her and we would do these marathons at Esalen. You know, for 10 days, dancing for 8 to 10 hours a day. And of course, we're all exhausted. And, and she would say, find the part of the body that wants to move, right? So even in, in, in moments where you feel like you can't move or it hurts, there's how can you find the place where the movement is accessible? So, Gabrielle, I knew Gabrielle also at Esalen. So, Mm-hmm. A story for you. I'm, I'm 27 years old, and I'm teaching at the University mm-hmm. of Michigan in Ann Arbor, and I'm extremely mm-hmm. self-conscious because I'm six foot five, and I'm like literally afraid to dance. And I know I'd like mm-hmm. to dance, but I'm too, I'm just too self-conscious to dance. At, at still at that age, 
And so I signed up for a ballet class. And every week I went to ballet. And there were 26 women in the class and myself. And one whole wall was a mirror. And I felt like some kind of an elephant or a giraffe in a room full of beautiful flowers. I thought I was like the clumsiest, you know, I just, but I stuck with it for the whole year. And at the end of the year, the good part about it was nothing terrible happened to me. I was still alive, still well, still okay. Even though every single week I would look in that mirror and it was like, oh my God, what a clumsy looking animal compared to all these others. So then I came to California and I met Annie Halpern at a uh, psychological association conference and we became friends. And in fact, she and I were on the first waterbed, I think, together at an art exhibit in San Francisco. It was 1966 or seven. So I signed up for one of, uh-huh. I signed up for one of her classes and it changed my life, Giselle. She taught me just what yeah. you just said with the finger. She said, Richard, just stand there and don't do anything mm-hmm. until the music is in you. And when the music is in you, let it move you. And when you let it move you, just move with it. And I kept doing it. And, and by the end of the year, and this is absolutely true, I could dance anywhere, on the street, on a table, <laughs> at your house. And to this day, that's been true. Yeah. I completely lost all that self-consciousness because she taught me how to dance, which is to feel the music and let the body knows what to do. Fabulous. I, I, I'm, I'm indebted to her to, to this day. Wonderful. So am I. So it's such a gift to have had teachers like that. So a wonderful story. Thank you for sharing. You're welcome. It's a, it's a wonderful story in my life. Yeah. And, and it is that, that African saying, right? If you can walk, you can dance. If you can talk, you can sing. Yes, I believe that and, also. Uh, and, and that, if you can talk, yeah, you can and that, sing. And that line... Right. And that, and that line, which is, which is pointing us to that source of life and vitality and creativity that exists inside. And, and how, again, going back to, you know, tapping into that, if we've been fogged by self judgment or by trauma or by criticism that might have come from the outside and we've interjected that, how do we strike ourselves away from that to contact our essence? to contact that in which is pure, that is joy, that is expensive, that is creative, that wants to express, wants to be alive, wants to celebrate, wants to dance. Oh my gosh, you must be a fantastic therapist. What a privilege it is for your patients to work with you. Thank you, Richard. I feel very blessed in in that. And I um, also, one of my teachers always said, uh, the cargas y regalos, Right, the gifts and the burdens of that, and it's because we, we, you know, in, in in witnessing, I feel like I've I've received so much uh, wisdom and knowledge and healing from from witnessing so many processes for so many years, and yet I've witnessed also a lot of pain and a lot of trauma, and have had to develop ways to self care in order to be able to do this work well and to be able to do it in a sustainable way. So what we call the, the cargas y regalos of, of the work, right? The gifts and the burdens of such profession that I'm sure you and everybody here who works in the mental health field or, or, or in the help and healing fields can, can attest to that. It's that, can... that gift of being able to serve that, that also at times, you know, invites us to engage with ourselves in a different way so that we actually can do it and can sustain ourselves in it. Yes. And we also, we need tactics for sustaining ourselves, Mm -hmm. the people who do this work. Mm -hmm. One time in looking for various ways to sustain myself, I used to go to a flower store on a weekly basis Mm -hmm. and just wander around in Mm -hmm. the flower store. And the woman said to me at one point, you come in every week, occasionally you buy something, but mostly you just wander around. She said, you're having a good time here. And I said, well, I sit in a room full of mostly pain all day. And I thought it would be yeah. nice to be in somebody's working environment where there's just beautiful smells and everybody comes in and they're smelling beautiful things and looking at beautiful flowers. I thought it would be good for my spirit. That's right. Yeah, yeah and it was. Yeah. Giselle, yeah. I have yes. a little, a little uh, end of the interview I don't know what it is, but it's here's what it is. Mm. Sometimes we leave a meeting or an interview or an event or a lecture we give, 
and we get in the car and we're driving and we think, oh, shucks, I wish I would have said or I wish I would have told them about. So right now, I'm going to ask you to pause and just go inside and see if there's anything else of all the beautiful things that you've shared with us today, if there's anything else you'd like to share. And while you're going inside and pausing, I'll do a little, I don't know, maybe it's not quite a commercial, but I'll talk about uh, the program. Okay? Sounds good. All right. Sounds good. So folks, please go to, the, uh, w- to our website, uh, Mind, Body, Health, and Politics. Look at the archives. Uh, select something that you'd like to hear. You can listen to it anytime you want. Please subscribe. There's something about you're doing something called subscribing that's very helpful to us, and I'd appreciate it. You might want to look at my book, Psychedelic Wisdom, uh, which just came out recently, and Psychedelic Medicine, which uh, many of you are familiar with. And let's go back now to Giselle Fernandez-Osterholt and find out if she has any last words for us. It's been a wonderful experience to see you again, Richard, I think. My my first meeting with you was at the opening of the Sage Institute, the low-fee clinic for ketamine, a few years back here in Oakland, when this vision of being able to provide psychedelic-assisted therapy for low-income communities was just coming to fruition. And I remember you were an active part of that celebration of that opening and the vision. And so here it is. I'm encounter you today again and we've talked about death and psychedelics and some of the studies at UCSF and some of my personal moments in life, uh, my teachers, my family, my own experiences. And so I'm I'm feeling very full of of gratitude for the opportunity to encounter you again in, in, in such a rich moment and to be able to share and feel very grateful for the parts of yourself that you shared here today in terms of your own history and, and the parts of you that contact death and the parts of you that love dancing and, and, and your engagement here in the community and offering these lectures, these conversations with so many interesting people and you being such a wonderful community member to have. So just sending you a big hug and gratitude, and love, and yeah, I guess that's what I have as a, oh, as a closure. Giselle, you've touched my heart. I, I've got the sweetest tears in my eyes. I thank you. I, uh, I, I look forward to referring people to you if you have room in your practice ever. I imagine you could have a waiting list 10, <laughs> ten, ten, ten years long. <laughs> And and, and that is and, true, right? And I also I also want to say, I want you to promise that after the study is published, you'll come back and we can go into details yes. about the results of this important study. So until next time, this is Dr. Richard Lewis Miller reminding you that good health is worth fighting for, and it is essential for life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. <laughs>